Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. And statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Inspirational women are increasingly popular in the news and media, but many go unheard and their stories are never told. Women to Watch with Susan Rocco captures the stories of many women who truly make a difference. Women to Watch is the vehicle for developing new leaders encouraging younger generations, and in building self-esteem for future entrepreneurs. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860 and womentowatch.net. I am very excited this afternoon to not only have a guest with me who uh, has done some incredible work and um, really is has a wonderful view about women and, and what helps them to be successful. But she's with me in the studio, <laughs> and I always love that rather than having uh, my guests call in. Before we get started, let me give you the call-in number if you'd like to speak uh, directly with our guests or join the show. We'd love to hear from you. Feel free to dial 888-329-3306. That's 888 888- 329-3306. So I'd like to welcome this afternoon to the show Jana Barbet, who is the global chair of Dentons, which pardon me? Vice chair. Vice chair. So I like the me. promotion. Oh. <laughs> I accept, but you no, accept. vice chair. I just promoted you. <laughs> Thank you. Vice chair of Dentons, which happens to be the one of the largest or the largest law firm in the world. Welcome to the show. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me. Uh, what this show does, I think, is so important because it it elevates women in a world that often denigrates women. And I am so pleased and honored to be here and engaged in this conversation with you. I'm really looking forward to it. So thank you. Well, thank you for saying that. I, I really appreciate it. And I'm excited as well. We have a lot to cover um, in an hour. And uh, I appreciate your flying in from Chicago. I want the listeners to know you don't live uh, right outside the building Go here. Cubs. Uh, go I'm just Cubs. saying. Yeah. Oh, go that Cubs. was great. That we was... can change the world. If the Cubs can win, <laughs> we can change the world. Right? Were you following? Are you a fan? How can you not be yes. at that point? Yes. My, my brother was at the parade. He said there were 5 million people there. Yeah. It was, it was a great week for that. Um, so listen, we were we were chatting before the show, before mm-hmm. we came on air, and um, obviously tomorrow is a big, big day, a long time coming. It's, it's election day tomorrow, and we have a, a historic first uh, with a woman running for president. And, you know, before we get into your story and, and your background and your upbringing, I thought it would be appropriate to... Uh, talk a little bit about tomorrow and what specifically it means to you um, as a woman with who happens to be a mother with daughters, um, what you hope will come from this election no matter where the vote goes. Um, you had some very interesting insight uh, before the show about not only tomorrow but what it will probably happen the day after. Right. No, yeah. I'd, I'm – 
I'm glad we started off with the easy question, <laughs> um, the future of the world in 30, yes. right, in 30 seconds or less. Right. Look, tomorrow is a huge, pivotal, historical day. Uh, we are, for the first time, uh, presented with the opportunity of voting for a woman president of the United States. When I was a little girl, we were told we could grow up to be president, uh, but none of us, I think, really believed it. And then as an adult, I observed uh, women in other countries progress into positions of ultimate authority and wondered, why is that not happening here? And suddenly, here we are on the brink of this possibility that we may have a woman president. It gives me chills. It thrills me because it means our potential is limitless. Tomorrow is about people voting their conscience. It isn't about who I'm voting for or who you're voting for. It's about voting and exercising that fundamental right in our democracy and expressing our belief in our system and in the rule of law. But it's about believing in the possibility. You know, it, I joked about the Cubs, miracles can happen. Well, you know what? Tomorrow was also something that nobody ever thought we'd see in our lifetime. And maybe it will happen, maybe it won't. I don't know. I just hope people go vote, and I hope that they care. And I hope it sends a message to my daughters that their future is limitless. But as hopeful as I am about tomorrow, I'm pretty worried about Wednesday. And I'm pretty worried about Thursday. This election has, in my view, battered this country. There's just so much negativity a person or a population can absorb. And we've seen individuals fan the flames of negativity. I want to be forward-looking. I want to focus on us healing. I'm not worried about America being great again. I think America is pretty great. I'm worried about America being good again and kind again and respectful again. And for me, that has to begin on Wednesday. I want my girls, and they're, look, they're 20 and 24. Um, they're already functioning in the world. But I want the world to be kinder to them and more respectful to them than some of the dialogue through this election has been. And I'd like each of us to be accountable for that in terms of our own behaviors. Somehow this election has made it acceptable for people to say the most offensive, outrageous, mean-spirited, and cruel things. Starting Wednesday, I'd like to see us put cruelty behind us for our daughters, for our sons, for each other. And look, it's going to be a process. I'm not even a little bit naive but I believe in the potential of our country, and I believe in the fundamental goodness of its people. But then we have to change the dialogue. We have to lift it up and focus on achieving maybe a level of grace that we haven't seen mm -hmm. in a while. So I'm glad the election is over tomorrow. I think <laughs> I'm like glad. everybody. I am so glad. Oh, I know. I know. And then I want to find my hope, and I want everyone to find their hope and so we can move forward together Yeah. because that's the answer in the end. Yeah. I, I so agree with you that, you know, if, if we don't have hope, right, that's, there's always, you know, things that, that happen in the world, and, and if you just kind of – uh, roll over and accept that it is what it is, um, that can be a very scary place to be. So I, I think you're right that the, the conversations have been incredibly, people have been incredibly angry, you know, and when there's anger, there's you can't have dialogue that is um, worthwhile, you know, productive. 
Um, so I think that after, perhaps after Wednesday or Thursday, as you say, those are going to be very pivotal days. I agree. How will people react um, depending on which way it goes? Um, but I think sometimes when you hit that, you know, that very dark, bad place, that's the time to start anew. So hopefully that will happen. That's my hope. That's what I pray for. Yeah. It'll be interesting. And I am excited for it. As, as much as I'm, you, you know, the fact that it's almost over, I am very, you know, excited to see what is going to happen. And well, look, we can't unring this bell. Yeah. Right? Right. We, we can't unring this bell. Yeah. So all we can do is move forward with our new reality. Right. And it feels as though there are no secrets anymore, right? That's We've right. We've been completely laid bare. Yes. And maybe that will inform better choices. Yes, that tr- I believe so. I really do. I think that transparency has brought us to a different place. Not it all good, but for right? sure. But just eyes open on, on what perhaps has not been good. And it enables a dialogue. When right. there's utter transparency, Yes, it, I think, enables a dialogue. And maybe it's time for a calm dialogue. And maybe there are leaders who will help us do that. Yeah. And maybe each of us can assume a role. I'd love to see you, uh, after this comes uh, about, uh, perhaps write a piece. (laughs) (laughs) You probably will. Okay, good. I'll be looking for it. So, listen, let's – I want to kind of backtrack a little bit because, um, as we always do on this show, we we talk about uh, my guest and who where they came from. You know, it's always so interesting to me to start at the the beginning of someone's story. And so I'd love to hear a little bit about your years growing up in uh, Miami, Mm -hmm. Beach, Florida, where I just happened to be this weekend, ironically. Did you have fun? Did you eat stone crabs? Did you do everything you're supposed to do? We pretty much did. We did. We did some football. We We were down there for a football game, but had some great seafood. Went to some great restaurants. Um, but I understand you grew up, so you were the youngest of four. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I'm excited to hear you talk a little bit about your dad, who you describe as a bona fide war hero. Um, and he certainly was. He received three Purple Hearts, uh, two Bronze Stars, and three Battle Stars. And I'll let you talk a little bit about why he received those. And your mom as well um, was formidable in her own right, as you describe. And they were married for 65 years which I love that. I mean, that is the epitome of, you know, loyalty and devotion, mm-hmm. right, through thick and thin. Um, so t- tell me a little bit about those young years and, and what it was like growing up in that tight-knit family, but the family that put some, um, you know, expectations on you. Right. My family was big on expectations. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so I'm the youngest of four. I have two sisters and a brother, um, and I uh, lost both my parents uh, in their 80s uh, several years ago. My father, as you note, was a remarkable man. Um, He uh, was not only a wonderful father and a very successful professional, he was indeed a bona fide war hero, uh, which was something we never understood when I was growing up, and I think there's real importance in that. Um, My father uh, landed in Normandy on Utah Beach uh, on D-plus three-day. Uh, He was the first American soldier to destroy a panzer tank with a bazooka. Um, He fought in the Battle of the Bulge and the Rhine River Valley. Uh, He was ultimately awarded, uh, when he was 80, the French Legion of Honor for taking out a sniper's nest on French soil. Um, We always joked, if, if you were ever a World War II movie buff, Um, The Dirty Dozen and all of those kinds of movies. If you remember, there was always a short little guy from Brooklyn with glasses who was very skinny. That was the guy in the movie. We always thought that was based on my father. Oh, really? That was the myth we developed in our house. But um, we didn't learn much of this until very late in my father's life. Uh, When I was growing up, I would walk down the hallway to my parents' bedroom, and he had uh, two framed displays. And in it were the three purple hearts and the bronze stars and the battle star. But I didn't fully understand what they meant. And he he didn't brag about it. He didn't talk about it. I think he understood that people died 
that this was a horrible war that threatened our world and people died on both sides of the battlefield. Uh, it wasn't something that led to sort of macho diatribes, you know, where he talked about his great war stories. Mm. Um, it came out very late in his life. He wrote memoirs, which is how we found out some of the details. Um, some of it we never knew because he never talked about it. And I'm, I'm so mindful of Tom Brokaw's uh, description of the greatest generation, um, and my parents were both members of this greatest generation. And this astonishing courage to be 18, to volunteer, and to run up the beach at Normandy while people are shooting at you, but then to approach it for the rest of your life with this degree of humility. Mm. Humility is in short supply mm. in our world yes. today. He didn't see anything to celebrate in that, I guess. No, he didn't. Um, it it was a part of his life. It was a part of who he was. Um, but it wasn't food for his ego. Mm, yeah. It was so he – it was funny because we'd look at him, and to us he was always an intellectual. And it was hard to re reconcile that with what had to be this incredibly scrappy little guy with a bazooka strapped to his back, right? right. I yes. Mean, you don't take out snipers' nests on French soil and destroy German tanks without, without guts. Right. You know, but it wasn't the dad who tucked us in and read to us at night. Mm. And so that, I think, dichotomy, I just think it reveals so much about a person's character. Mm -hmm. And then my mother, you know, my mother was scarier than my father. <laughs> my, my mother, I had a friend who once described my mother as uh, General Patton without the interpersonal skills. <laughs> my mother was formidable. Um we often wondered what she would have become in a world where women were treated equally. Mm. Um, could she have been a CEO or a dictator? Did Possibly. She, yeah. <laughs> did she stay home and raise you? Um, she did stay home, but mm -hmm. later in life she went back to school and got a master's. Good. Uh, so when I was growing up, uh, my mother was either in school getting a master's or worked full time, which is different from all of my siblings. Okay. So I experienced my mother quite differently. Um, I would say in terms of how my parents uh, cultivated my current personality or personality issues, depending on who you ask, <laughs> um, they believed deeply in the family dinner. My father was always home from work for the family dinner. Uh, the family dinner was always about conversation, not television. It was about current events. Uh, we were all entitled to our views. It didn't matter that um, I was the youngest, and my brother, uh, who's a doctor, is 13 years older than me. Uh, we're at the same table and obviously informed at different levels, <laughs> given that age difference. Interested in different um, topics. My opinions were just as relevant, and I was encouraged to hold my own at the dinner table with my opinions and to defend them. Yeah. Um, and I think that had a very profound impact on me. I think early on I learned to separate my self-esteem from whatever came out of my mouth at any given moment. <laughs> um, and I think somehow that confidence to engage and to ask questions and to um, give license to your curiosity and your uh, creativity was very well received um, and mattered in who I became as a person. Um, at the same time, you know, this was this was a house of high achievers. This was not a house where you walked in with a report card that wasn't stellar and expected to, you know, live through the experience in any sort of meaningful way. This, these were not parents who said, as long as you did your best, honey. Oh, okay, that was not – we never got the as long as you did you your did. best, honey. That, that wasn't how it worked in this house. So, so they raised overachievers, and that's what they produced. Well, had – you know, that, that – that Good and bad. You know, if you're if you're um, if you struggle, you know, with the the schoolwork, and it can be a little bit more challenging for you. We all know that some some people are just better students. You know, right. they absorb the information and and they remember it and they understand it. And some of us <laughs> have to work a little bit harder. Where were you in that? And and did those expectations being the fourth in line? Um, you know, was that hard? Um, it was hard. 
And I was one of those kids that was very good at certain things, very good at reading and uh, writing and speaking, um, and not so good at math. Mm -hmm. Uh, And my father was um, an accountant and uh, could beat the old adding machines. They would do tests. Um, So math was his thing. Yeah. Um, And I have very vivid memories of, you know, long division and being told I wasn't lining up the columns. Um, And I'm (laughs) like, just saying that is making me twitch. Um, So something stay with us, don't you know, and you worry today, obviously, we worry about girls being told they're not as good at math, Mm -hmm. Um, math and science. Right. And ironically, I'm a transactional lawyer with a heavy focus on tax. So somewhere along the way, I got over my fear of numbers. You did. It. You know, it was it was tough, and on that score, there was not much patience. Um, I will tell you, speaking of numbers, that one of my father's uh, favorite things was once a year he would sit down and tell me what I cost, um, and I mean with line item by line item. And the piece that would upset him the most was sort of the the drugstore, uh, like hair products. <laughs> And, you know, blue eyeshadow <laughs> and the makeup we bought in the right. 1970s. Um, and he would go line item by line item, like what I had spent at the drugstore, so that he would add up for me the entire year of what well, I cost. Well, that's a great lesson in money, <laughs> right? And save, actually, I, do, I think that's really smart. I, we, I had to sit in his office and go over the, the annual cost. I, I Today I would refer to it as the audit. And, yeah, right? Oh, right. <laughs> right, Jana's audit, right. So, but it, these things mold you in life. Yeah, they right? do. Well, I mean, really, those are great lessons. We, we we talk often on the show about the importance of teaching children about money. You know, beyond the math, they need to know about money. Um, it's it's critically important. And so your dad was doing that. You know, right. at the same time, he was probably trying to uh, encourage you maybe to. To use less right. less items. hair product, less right. hair product, right. less hair product would be good. Yeah, but you know those those dinner conversations every night, that consistency of being with family and and not just being there, but really engaging in conversation and allowing for opinions, that fosters such wonderful, um, I think, self esteem in children. And and my guess is that that's carried on with you. Um, I think that's wonderful. And tell me what, you know, mom and dad married for 65 years. You know, when you think about that, what does that leave you with as as far as life lessons? Because, you know, there's never smooth sailing. But when people stick it out and stay together that long, I think uh, it's really special. You know, I think at some point along the way they made this determination that that life together was way, way better than life without the other could be. Mm. Uh, They met in French class at City College in New York. My father went to war. We have the pictures of him in the uniform and my mother with her coiffed 1940s hair. Um, They loved each other. They, you know, we always joke. Again, I I come from a long line of very verbal people. So we joked, you know, 65 years and never a harsh word. And everybody would sort of roll their eyes because, (laughs) you know, my parents were often compared, if you ever watch the old uh, Seinfeld show, to George's parents. Oh, oh, yes. That was sort of the (laughs) dynamic of my parents. So... um, it's a little bit like the Goldbergs. Have you watched that? that I haven't. But oh my gosh, I love it. I love it. It's a lot of a lot of yelling, but it's a lot of love. Right. right? It's, there was a lot of yelling. Yeah. <laughs> there was a yelling. lot of yelling over those 65 right. years. But they made a choice that their life together was better. Yeah. That's a um, great way to say it. And I, I also think this is again back to this whole greatest generation thing. I don't. I don't think separating would have ever crossed their minds. Mm. Um, You know, there's almost a nobility to that generation. And again, maybe this is my sensitivity about the election coming out, but there was a nobility and an understanding of sacrifice. Mm -hmm. Um, And we talked about humility. My mother always liked to tell people that she paid for my parents' first trip to Europe with the money she saved using green stamps. Now, I'm old enough to know what a green stamp is. I'm sure a lot of people aren't. But, you know, there was a very different philosophy, outlook on life. Um, And decisions were long-term. It wasn't short-term gratification. Mm 
That's exactly right. And perspective was, I think, wildly different. I'm a big believer in perspective. Um, I actually have in my uh, tote bag over there my firm ID, and I wear it on a long chain with my father's dog tags. So I could show you I have my dad's dog tags in my bag, and I wear the ID and his dog tags um, for perspective because however bad my day is, I'm not running up a hill on the beach in Normandy with bullets flying by my head. Mm. Um, And being reminded of that and of his courage and of his uh, humility, I find very helpful at work. Mm -hmm. There are days where I just grab the the dog tags and I just sort of hold on to them like, you know, a rabbit's foot, like a good luck charm, just to remind me how lucky, you can do this. Yeah, and how lucky we really are, right, right. In, the, in the grand scheme of things. Right. On our worst day, we're right. so Right, on blessed. our worst day, yes. it's not Normandy with, yeah. with bodies. Every, yeah. I mean, it, you know, it, yeah. that reminder and that perspective and that, it also helps me to say you come from pretty, pretty good stock. That's right. You yeah. come from pretty strong stock. Right. You got this. Yeah, you got this. Yeah, I love that. Um, so I wanted to talk about the fact that you actually you went to school and you and you studied art history. I did. And then at some point you decided I'm going to be no, a no. lawyer. No, 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 no. I did not <laughs> decide I was going to be a lawyer. My parents oh, decided I was going to be a lawyer. <laughs> We're back to this whole oh, okay, overachieving thing. Yes. So, no, my degree was in art history, which okay. I loved and I still love. Um, but my uh, parents made it uh, very clear that I was going to law school. And for me, law school was somewhat inevitable. And the closest to a compromise we ever had was that, well, if you really hate it, you can use the degree to do something else. Um, which is true. It's, which is it, true. Right? It comes but in handy to have a law degree no matter what you're doing in life. My siblings all have graduate degrees. None, none of this was really optional in our house. And, and my parents valued education so much. And they viewed it as their moral responsibility to educate us. Um, so off to law school I went. And when I graduated, my mother said, now I can die in peace. In the most dramatic way, you know, imaginable <laughs> in front of a room full of people. Um, so because, you know, that was what she did. But So it wasn't – I didn't know I was born to be a lawyer. I, I did what I was told. You did. Okay. Well, then my, my next question has to be, was that the right path for you? I, I think now. it absolutely was. But I found my fulfillment in being a lawyer – Later, so my um, my career path is unconventional to say the least. I went to the University of Chicago Law School, which you know is fabulous. And uh, when I graduated, I went to work for an amazing law firm, um, and I worked for them for a few years. And I worked like a dog. I mean, the kind of hours you know you can't even fathom twenty eight hundred billable hours a year. Lawyers like to put. I mean, I worked crazy hours. Um, and uh, the world was a different place then. It was the late 80s. It was harder for women. You didn't have senior women partner role models mm-hmm. all that much in the late 80s. Um, and uh, I became increasingly miserable. So I started reading want ads. Um, in those days, we read them in the newspaper, in the right. Sunday Tribune, <laughs> in the classified section. And I uh, was reading want ads, and there was a blind want ad uh, where they wanted someone with experience in real estate uh, to come work for a nonprofit uh, to help develop housing for the homeless and mentally ill, um, two-year grant-funded position. And I looked at this, and I went, well, it's only two years. It sounds really gratifying. Um, I'm just going to apply. And so I sent a letter to a blind want ad, like a P.O. box, through the Chicago Tribune, I um, made the mistake of telling my parents uh, I had applied for this job. And my mother's uh, famous response was, I'm not into your altruism. <laughs> That's the quote. I'm not into your altruism. I didn't really educate you to help people. Um, <laughs> like I said. My, wow. Right. Yeah. yeah. So um, blind one ad, I got a call a couple of months later. And I uh, went in for an interview, and uh, the gentleman, and I'm still friends with him, 
uh, said, so why do you want to work here? And I said, I have no idea. Like, why do I want to work here? I'm just running away from that. Okay, I'm going to be completely honest. I'm just running away from that. I have no idea why right. I want to be here. This was a threshold. This that, was threshold. Oh, this was threshold. Okay. So this is uh, in um, 1990, I went to work for Thresholds. Uh, Thresholds is uh, Illinois' oldest and largest provider of supportive services for individuals with mental illnesses. Um, it's also the largest provider of supportive housing for individuals uh, with mental illnesses. It serves over 7,000 people a year. Now it has, you know, an enormous operating budget and, I don't know, 1,500 employees. It's an astonishing not-for-profit. And you are you on the board today? I'm still on the board 26 years later. So they hired me. I became their first general counsel. I learned to do uh, low-income housing tax credits uh, transactions there because it was a mechanism to develop housing for the homeless uh, funded by private money. And uh, ultimately, that is what led to my career. But it was a blind but one. But you really don't – do you not know to this day what moved you to – It was impulse. I impulse. just – it was just impulse and guts. But thresholds gave me fulfillment as a lawyer. Up until then, nothing I was doing – it was interesting. It was intellectually challenging. Mm-hmm. But thresholds made me feel like what I could do would make a difference, yeah. that it was a profession with a capital P, that it was an honorable profession. And it was those moments in my life that I went, you know what, I was supposed to go to law school. I was supposed to do this. Mm. And even when I returned to private practice, because that is fundamentally, I mean, I have the greatest job in the world. 100% of what I do is socially redeeming. I represent big banks and big insurance companies on their social investing Mm. when they invest in low-income housing. And thresholds led me to that path. But it was only when I was down that path that I looked back and said, oh, yeah, this worked out okay. Mom and Dad were right. Yeah, well, (laughs) it's funny. Sometimes we don't see it when we're in it. You know, you see it Mm -hmm. when you look back. Um, Listen, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit about your love of horses and how you relate that to, you know, business and life. We'll be right back. There are 365 days to schedule a mammogram. Today is as good as any. Holy Redeemer Breast Care makes it easy. We offer the latest technology like 3D mammography and automated breast ultrasound that help find cancers in dense breast tissue. Plus, our same-day readings mean same-day peace of mind. Make today the day you schedule a mammogram. It's easy to request an appointment online at holyredeemer.com slash mammogram. Are you the parent of a daughter in middle school? If so, I must tell you about an upcoming event at Mount St. Joseph Academy on Sunday, October the 16th at 12 noon. As the parent of an alum, I know firsthand the value of their academic excellence, athletic and arts programs. This private, all-girls Catholic high school in Montgomery County provides the foundation our daughters need to go on to leadership roles at top universities and future careers. I know my daughter did. To register for the open house on Sunday, October the 16th at 12 noon, go to msjacad.org backslash open house. And be sure to ask about their financial assistance and scholarship programs when you visit msjacad.org backslash open house. I'm Jocelyn Ewart, founding principal of Entrust Financial in Wayne, Pennsylvania. And it is my pleasure to share financial tips with you during my monthly segment on Women to Watch. I hope you are a regular listener like I am and that you are finding the personal finance tips I provide helpful. Some of the topics we have discussed so far this year are how to get organized, how to help your children learn good money habits, how to create that all-important travel budget, and what steps are needed as you prepare for retirement. Now I have truly exciting news for you news you can share with your family and friends. As a veteran certified financial planner professional, I just published my first book, Balancing Act, Wealth Management Straight Talk for Women. It is filled with inspiring real case studies to help you and other women move past fear, build confidence, and make the right decisions without financial concerns. Just go to amazon.com to purchase your copy. And please, 
write a review for Balancing Act Wealth Management Straight Talk for Women. I look forward to reading it. Welcome back, everyone, to another week of Women to Watch on WWDB Talk 860 and womentowatch.net. I'm having a wonderful conversation this afternoon with Jana Barbet, Global Vice Chair of Denton's Law Firm. And uh, just before the break, we were talking a little bit about your background and your upbringing, and I think we should do a whole show on your mom, by the way. (laughs) You could. Because she has her own story, I'm sure. I'd love to know it. Um, But one of the things that's been a big part of your life outside of uh, your career has been horseback riding. Mm -hmm. And um, I read a quote. Uh, pertaining to that, um, you you know you talk about riding horses your whole life and kind of viewing that um, whether it's a hobby or you know an activity, a sport, um, as something that kind of helps you uh, stay strong in business. And you said, when I stand on the precipice or face a test of my abilities in business, I say to myself exactly what I've always said to myself at the in gate: I up, leg on. Um, I think that's I always I always love um, very small, short, um, you know, reminders. You know, we were talking about how you wear your dad's dog tags as a reminder. And when you're kind of in a moment and and you're feeling anxious or nervous or perhaps, you know, second guessing and you say to yourself, leg uh, eye up, leg on. Tell me what that means to you and, and where that came from. For sure. So I was one of those uh, little girls that fell in love with horses and I never outgrew it. And today we have a farm in Lexington, Kentucky, and I ride whenever I'm on the farm. And um, I did show at points throughout my life and compete. Uh, and there are certain things you learn uh, in the riding arena, uh, particularly when you're jumping horses. Um, but riding generally, I think these are truths. Um, the first is the horse follows your eye. So if you're looking at the ground, there's a decent chance you're going to wind up in the ground. He's going to throw you <laughs> off. <laughs> I up. You look toward the jump. You look toward the next jump. You look where you want to be, not where you are. Mm. And I've always found that, you know, to have profound impact in my life in business, I see where I want to be, not where I am. Mm -hmm. So when I say I up, I'm in the ring, I up, I'm looking, you know, the first jump and two jumps ahead of it. Okay, you're looking forward. I'm yeah. looking forward. Yeah. Um, leg on uh, means it is far better to make a mistake with forward impulsion than to stop out. Um, it is far better to leg your way through a mistake, to offer yourself power, speed, momentum to get you to the other side of the jump than to take your leg off, to be tentative, to hold back, and you stop out. When you're jumping, you fall most often when you don't make it over the jump, when the horse stops <laughs> and you go over the jump without him. Yes. Um, so leg on means, to me, it's release your power. Don't be afraid of the speed. Don't be afraid of the power. Don't be afraid of the momentum. It is far better to make a mistake going forward than to be frozen where you are. Mm, that's and a great analogy. Yeah. So I up leg on. Yeah. When I'm about to give a big speech, when I'm going into a deal that is unraveling, you know, when clients are angry or partners are angry, I stand outside the door just like I was sitting on my horse at the inn gate going in the ring, and I say, I up, leg, leg on. on. That's great. Do you say that to your team? Do you say that to colleagues and people you work with? No, they with? think I'm crazy. Oh. They think the whole, <laughs> oh, no, I think it's great advice. It's the great whole advice. horse thing, I think they, they tolerate. Some days better than others. Well, you know, the listeners can't see. You're a petite woman, you know. I'm little. You're and, little. And, and my horses, horses are big creatures. But you know what? That um, That's part of it all. Look, you don't ride horses your whole life and not want the adrenaline. Okay, there is a risk element. Mm-hmm. You do there fall. Is. Yes. So you have to be drawn somewhat to the adrenaline. And for me, it's part of the exercise is also mastering the fear um, and deploying the level of concentration that's necessary. I ironically ride a horse that um, these days who is gigantic. You know, he's like relative human beings. He would be like Shaquille O'Neal. He's over 18 hands. Um, so I look wow. like this just 
little thing perched Hold on top on for of your life. <laughs> um, and but you're I, in control. Well, we yeah. Well, sometimes it's a partnership. Yeah. Um, we call him Tiny. Um, sometimes Tiny is in charge, and sometimes I am oh. in charge. <laughs> and we have come to understand the moments when he needs to be in charge, and the moments when I need to be in charge. Horseback riding is a partnership, but for me too, it it's also empowering because when I look at at someone, I have to have a difficult conversation with, or someone is angry at me. I think, well, you know, at least they don't weigh 1,500 pounds and they can't kill me. <laughs> um, and there's something about that that helps hold the fear Conscious. in check. Yeah. In my career, you know, fear, uh, the quest for approval, all those things were relevant in my career and only became things I, I got a better handle on later in life. But writing has always empowered me and emboldened me to maybe take risks others wouldn't take. Mm. Um, and it, and I, I guess the other piece of it is, for me, I wouldn't be happy without horses. And that's got to matter, too. You have to find in life what makes you happy. Yes, absolutely. Um, do, your, do your girls ride? They do. They They're do. great riders, yeah. and they've ridden their whole life. Yeah, terrific. You know, you mentioned having to deal with people in difficult situations and, and talking to preparing to talk to someone where perhaps you're not giving good news. Um, I want to jump ahead for a bit and, and mention that you, you chaired the firm's financial institutions sector as well as the real estate practice during the economic downturn. That was a scary time for most everyone. Um, I wanted to know what your philosophy was during that time and how you managed to be successful um, in spite of it? What, what, what did you take with you to work each day during that time that allowed you to, um, to be successful in doing it? It was an incredibly difficult time um, to manage uh, practice areas that were so vulnerable uh, to the economy. And just for context, you know, we had – Situations where you know, the most productive, most profitable sort of practices went from being this like engine to zero. It didn't go from 100 to 50. It went from 100 to zero mm. to dead stop. And the shock of that and the challenges that present, um, I found them uh, very difficult uh, to navigate. In the end, I, I think what you wind up doing is attempting to strike a balance between um, enabling the firm to move forward, making sure the business is solid and dependable, and the folks in the mailroom are still going to have jobs the next morning, and the doors will stay open. And the moral imperative of that. Um, I think causes you to make hard choices. And the choices were hard. Uh, we let people go during that time. Um, it was extraordinarily difficult. We encouraged people to retool. We encouraged people to write uh, new business plans, to explore new opportunities. But you're talking about a time when entire law firms and entire practices failed. And in the end, for me, the moral imperative was to keep the doors open and to hold together what had to be held together to keep the practice thriving and alive. And so the hard decisions were made, and they were implemented at great human cost. Mm. And I, you're the first one to have asked me about it in a very, very long time. Um, it's not something I wear easily or remember easily. Um, I'm proud of some strategic moves we made at the time. Uh, we diversified significantly during that time, and we set out to diversify our skill sets um, because diversification will you know, hedge your, your bets during downtimes. Um, so I don't want to give the impression that all we did was shrink um, because that's not true. Um, we both shrank and we grew 
and repositioned ourselves to be a far more diverse practice area that could uh, survive ups and downs. So you would have workout and bankruptcy experts and you would have, you know, origination experts during high times. And, you know, during the high times, the origination experts would keep the bankruptcy people, you know, around. And during the bad times, the bankruptcy people would keep the new origination guys around. Um, We made lots of those strategic choices. But, you know, there were days where we just steadied ourselves and had to have very difficult conversations with people we really cared about and really liked. And I've done that too often in my career, and it's heartbreaking. Yeah, it's one of the toughest parts of the job. One of the toughest parts. Um, Sometimes it's... You can rationalize it's for the best, but many times you can't. Um, so for me, it was the greater good. Mm-hmm. The obligation is for the firm to survive. Yeah. Tell me what you said to your employees to keep them positive and believing that the firm would indeed, you know, go on, even though you were making all these tough decisions and, and cutting back in certain areas. How do you speak to your employees to, to keep them positive? I don't I don't think of myself as having any employees. I think of myself as having colleagues. And um I think the only way during difficult times is to do so candidly and transparently and truthfully. And this is, you know, why we're doing what we're doing. Um and we're all uh going to have to roll our sleeves up and reinvent ourselves and and do some things differently. We're all going to have to keep rowing the boat in the same direction. You know, all of those sort of trite expressions are true and were said. But in the end, I just told the truth. This is where we are, and this is where we have to be. Um, I, you know, different leadership, uh, different individuals in leadership, different folks in management have different styles and approaches. Um, I uh, tend to wear what I'm thinking and feeling on my sleeve. So trying to hide it doesn't really work all that well anyways. Mm -hmm. Um, I uh, believe in transparency. I believe in speaking the truth. Um, It uh, isn't always well received, um, but it's who I've become. Um, I had a conversation with a partner a couple weeks ago whom, let me begin this by saying, I adore him and he meant well. Um, <laughs> just want to begin, I adore him and he meant well. Okay. We were discussing my role in leadership and um, some frustrations I was having. And he said, well, you understand you're the speed bump. And I said, excuse me? And he said, you're the speed bump. You're the one in the room who slows us down and makes us go a little bit more slowly and a little bit more deliberately. And I said, you understand that still means I have tread marks on my back, right? I mean, like, you're, you're clear on that, but in the end, I'm still run over. And he goes, yeah, but the speed bump is really valuable, and you're the speed bump. And I thought, well, okay, you know, I'm the speed bump. Um, there needs to be one. There right? needs there, to be one. Especially today, right, where right. everything is moving so quickly and rapidly and um, decisions are not always made to, you know, to, right. in the best and the possible way. information's flying. That's and you, right. So I, yeah. I wasn't perfect managing the financial institutions and, and real estate uh, groups during the downturn, but I did the best I could, and I think people – understood I was doing the best I could and the best thing I could do for the firm and holding the group uh, to the highest possible standards so we had the freedom to make our own choices Mm -hmm. and choices weren't handed to us. That was very important to me. And I'm not perfect today. Um, And I, you know, I wake up knowing I'm not universally loved. I'm just more okay with that today at my age than maybe I used to (laughs) That is one of the advantages of getting older, <laughs> right. isn't it? Not, but I would, I would say that what, when you're talking about being transparent and making really tough decisions that hurt some people, if you're doing it and at the sh- same time showing that you care, then I would imagine it's going to be received as best it can be. 
In other words, I can tell meeting you that um, even though you have to make these choices, it affects you. So that will resonate with people. You hope it does. Yeah. You don't know often at the moment whether it does. And it can't be about you. Delivering bad news isn't about you. It's about them. It isn't about how bad it makes me feel or or my reputation. It isn't about me. It's about them. Yes. And it ought to be about them. And we should do everything we can under those circumstances to um, make it about them and facilitate the transition to the greatest extent possible. I think people go wrong when they make those discussions about them. It isn't. You're right. You're right. Um, You had an opportunity to speak um, at a women's summit uh, hosted by Barron's on the authenticity, entrepreneurship, and the new model of female leadership. Tell me what you believe it takes to move into this new era of of women's leadership. When I say that, what it takes, in other words, what it will take to encourage more women to pursue it, whether it is um, wherever they are, whether they're in a major corporation or they're just kind of sitting trying to make that decision to start a new business, um, how can we encourage them to do it? Well, look, I think Sheryl Sandberg, did a spectacular job of encouraging women to lean in. Um, By being transparent, right? By being transparent. What that book did for me um, was it didn't necessarily alter any decisions I made, but it made me more conscious of my decisions and my behaviors and my self-imposed limitations and my fears. Um, It made me more aware Uh, So when I think about what we can do to encourage women um, to seek leadership roles and to position women, because it's both encouraging women and then those of us in more senior roles positioning women to enter the C-suite to lead. You know, I um, I think we have to be more respectful and appreciative of the attributes of women that are not often found in men. And I also think the attributes of women that we do find in men that we often hold against women, well, I think we just have to cut that out big time. So I think we have situations where uh, we have women who are ambitious and aggressive, Mm -hmm. um, and those are attributes and characteristics uh, we don't always encourage in women. Um, I think we have to encourage those attributes. The double standard that it is okay for a man to be overtly ambitious but not for a woman is simply unacceptable. And then I think we also have to uh, find a way to demonstrate um, more palpably that some of the attributes found in women um, that men uh, don't always exhibit, at least publicly, um, empathy, uh, being one, uh, is incredibly valuable to a leader. The best leaders, men or women, that I know today have you know, amazing emotional IQs and are capable of great empathy. Um, But a woman who demonstrates sometimes that degree of emotional IQ and empathy earlier in her career is almost penalized for it. She feels things deeply, therefore she is not tough enough. Or not capable. Or not capable. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, I think we have to then redefine the standards for progression to leadership. I also think um, we have to encourage women to feel safer seeking leadership. Um, You know, uh, in some law firms, uh, to progress into leadership, there are elections. Uh, Women don't like to run. We just don't, I mean, it's it's been established multiple times in multiple ways. Women don't like to, to run. We don't like to deal with the whole election process, the rejection associated with election. Is it the competitive nature of it, do you think? I think it's the vulnerability. At least for me it would be. Mm-hmm. To put myself out there and lose, mm-hmm. I'm not sure I'd be willing to be that vulnerable if I had to run. Um, 
And so we have to rally around them. We have to encourage them. And even where there isn't an election, women have to feel safe progressing. And that's sort of a a funny comment to make. I understand that. But on some level, the more senior I've become, the less safe I have felt. Mm. And so I want those who come after me to feel they'll to feel safe, to feel they'll be treated kindly and respectfully in the room at all times. Mm. You know, we we only have a few minutes left, but I, I did want to talk about the article that Sally Krawcheck, the founder mm-hmm. of Elevate, wrote this afternoon, and you and I both happened to read it. Um, and, and it really talked about kind of the sad realization that the gender bias and sexism still does exist in the workplace today, in spite of everything that we're doing and all the conversations that we are having. Um, and I know that you have experienced it yourself. Oh, and without a doubt. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a big part of, of what kind of gets women. It's the fear. You know, we, we that doesn't feel good to have those experiences. It's, look, It hurts. I've been in the room, and I've been told uh, you are not supporting this potential woman lateral hire that we want to hire. You're not supporting her because she's a woman, and she threatens you. I have also been sitting in the room and been told you are only supporting this lateral hire candidate because she's a woman. Right. You can't win, right? Right. Yeah. Um, I have expressed concern about the lack of women uh, in leadership roles and uh, had those concerns met with, you know, it intended to be in good humor, but sort of the snide comment of, well, you know, perhaps if he had a sex change, you would support him in this role. Mm. Um, and and then there were the worst comments. Um, it's tough out there. And ironically, so often the comments come from those who are the most well-intentioned Um, but they simply don't recognize the bias or the behavior in themselves. Mm -hmm. So sadly, yeah. (laughs) Sexual harassment exists. In the last minute, what can we do? Is is your view that um, the closer we get to to having more firsts, you know, you yourself Mm -hmm. are a first, um, the closer to change we will get? In other words, we're seeing more women – Leading just mm-hmm. right across all industries, and so the larger that number becomes, this is you know what I feel that organically things will just change because it will there will not be a place to judge uh, what a woman is deciding the decisions she's making based on the fact that she's just a woman because it will be more commonplace that she's I, there. I absolutely agree. Um, I think the more common it becomes, the easier it becomes. I think. We also have to resolve to do better. So I can tell you these stories and tell you my law firm isn't perfect. Find me a law firm that is on gender issues. Uh, We are not perfect. But I can tell you we wake up every morning committed to doing the right thing, and we try really hard to do the right thing. We'll do bias training during compensation processes. We, We wake up every day understanding that we might be Sisyphus and we might be pushing that damn boulder up that hill to have it roll back down on our head. Yeah, that's okay. But we try. Yeah, that's the, that's all you can do. Right. Jana, thank you so much for joining me this afternoon on Women to Watch. I really appreciate your time and the busy schedule you have pleasure. to share your, your great advice and your story. Thank you so much. That's it, everyone, for this week of Women to Watch. Be sure to visit our website for all things related to the show at womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net. Have a great week, everyone.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.